When you first spoke out about the Emmy nomination process in Soaps in Depth, calling it contaminated and racist, your then Young and the Restless co-star Peter Bergman said in an interview with TV Guide Canada's Nelson Branco, I quote, I look at her with compassion and concern. I don't think she's playing with a full deck, end quote. How do you respond to remarks like that? Well, Peter's a talented uh, actor, but I feel that Peter is an actor that lives in a bubble. Excuse the pun. Welcome to a very special episode of the Daytime Confidential Podcast. On today's episode, we celebrate our 300th episode. A few weeks ago, Luke asked me if we could try to land someone huge to mark our 300th podcast. My first thought was, who would be better than Victoria Rao, the legendary soap superstar who portrayed one of daytime television's most unforgettable characters, Drusilla Barber Winters, on The Young and the Restless? I recently met Vicky here in Atlanta, and the phenomenal actress, writer, humanitarian, and mother graciously agreed to help us celebrate our big day. Vicki, welcome to Daytime Confidential. Woohoo! Thank yes. you for having me, and congratulations, Jamie. Congratulations, Luke. It's taken a lot of effort from a lot of people, and each of them is valuable to the team, and it couldn't have been done without them, and we so appreciate having you here with us for this special episode. My pleasure. Vicki, you're here in Atlanta promoting your phenomenal New York Times best-selling memoir, The Women Who Raised Me and have pretty much been on the road nonstop for the past 17 months. That's unheard of for a celebrity author. How do you handle the pace? It's quite rigorous, but I have to tell you, Jamie, Bus and Truck is not foreign to me. As a former ballet dancer with the American Ballet Theater family, Bus and Truck, uh, you know, sometimes we flew by, you know, we, we were able to have the uh, generosity of a patron that paid for plane tickets, but typically, you know, we were bus and truck. So I feel like <laughs> I'm back on the road, and the beauty here is that I've been able to press flesh and meet and greet people that have been supporting me for 25 years in primetime and daytime television wow. on, the bus, on the bus and book tour. It's been incredible. The w Women Who Raised Me details your own experience growing up in the foster care system. In your travels promoting the book, have you ran into foster children or former foster children who thank you for shining light on the situation? Yes, Luke. There are 12 million alum that have come out of the foster care system, and I have uh, certainly been one of them. Um, I've met countless people who were either adopted or who came through the foster care system or are currently in there. But not only that, I've met grandparents who are foster parents, now a second-generation children in their household due to the drug epidemics. And I have been uh, met with incredible testimony from justices and social workers, nurses even, and um, people who take testimony from children that are abused. I mean... This has really been amazing, meeting pregnant teen girls and being invited to, to speak to executive women with Capital Bank, for instance. Um, it has really exploded and, and grown exponentially in terms of interest because embedded in the book are issues that really relate to all people and not just women. It's an amazing work that you're doing, and it's so appreciated. 
Yes, uh, we, we've seen that. As I mentioned to Jamie, the Women Who Raised Me has taken me to India and back and other countries. I'm getting ready to go to Germany next month with the book. And it's very exciting. It is a lot of work. You do have to have tremendous fortitude, mental and physical stamina. But um, it's it's bigger than me, clearly, and that's why I knew I, I needed to get on the road and, and really advocate for people who go unheralded day in and day out doing extraordinary work, whether it's in health care or, or health and human services. Well, almost 20 years ago, you started your own organization, the Ralph Foster Children Positive Plan. Tell us what that organization is all about. Right. RFCPP, Raoul Foster Children's Positive Plan, uh, raises funds and allocates them to foster and adopted youth who wish to study classical arts or arts, period. And that's what we do since so many of the fine arts programs have been stripped from public schools. Um, we realized and recognized the importance of fine arts for children as a, as a way of expressing themselves. And it certainly was what was afforded to me as a, as a former foster youth studying ballet. That being said, we also uh, provide stipends, financial stipends for foster and adopted youth who go on to college. We have two young men who are on the dean's list and studying Japanese and um, just graduated a young man from in New York City with his architectural degree. So that's what we do, um, and uh, it's a lot of work. 501c3 work is uh, predominantly volunteerism, uh, but the payoff is, is really great. We do long-term mentoring upwards of 10 years or more. Wow, that, that's impressive. Well, the children start with us in, in fine arts, whether it's tap classes or piano lessons or guitar or uh, a drama. Uh, they, they stay with us, or ballet, certainly, and uh, we watch them grow. The, the fine art component, if anyone is wondering, is deeply rooted in discipline. And we believe that if we can give the children the discipline that is rooted and anchored in all types of, of art, Forms. Um, we believe that that discipline will be, you know, um, it, it'll transcend in into um, other work and studies, and we've and we've been right. Well, you've mentioned ballet, and I wanted to pick up on that. Prior to becoming an actress, uh, you were a 17-year-old ballet dancer and later a model in New York City. Did the arts provide you with a way to carve out a, a niche for yourself in life that perhaps people who may have come from traditional families may not have had to worry about so early on in life? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, because of the nature of how I was growing up in foster care, and I had amazing mentors and teachers, but there weren't a lot of choices, Luke. I really had one choice in terms of a gateway out of the circumstance, and that was called classical ballet. I happened to be passionate about it, but there wasn't like running to, you know, Buffy running to tennis lessons, and nothing against Buffy, but Buffy running to tennis lessons on Saturdays, and then ballet twice a week, and then we're going to go ice skating, and then, oh, yes, we have to go to the debutante. You know, there's just all those other choices, obviously, that... Many, many children are afforded. I certainly have offered my children an enormous amount of opportunity, but I was given one option, and it was called the ballet studio, and so I sunk everything I had into training. Um, it got to be six days a week. 
before I went off to New York City to audition for American Ballet Theater School. And I think, you know, my circumstance set me up to be myopic in that in that quest to be successful. If if that is not the true American story, to take the opportunity you are given and to make the most of it and look where you've ended up, that's so impressive. Thank you. Now, shortly after you joined The Young and the Restless, Bill Bell introduced a storyline where Mamie's street urchin niece, Drusilla, was transformed into a graceful swan through ballet. What was it like working with the late creator of The Young and the Restless and The Bold and the Beautiful on that storyline? Well, in a word, fantastic. Um, Bill and I were thick as thieves, and uh, he he auditioned me and selected me single-handedly for the role of Drusilla. And, you know, um, it was an extraordinary opportunity to work with, you know, such an iconoclastic individual who was totally passionate about the work he was doing, a writer's writer. He loved actors. He loved creative people. And more than any of that, he loved people that gave 110%. So, you know, he knew a little bit of, he thought he read about my biography, you know, read about my dance, I imagine, uh, training in my biography, but I don't think he knew to the extent um, that I danced. And so when he saw that, you know, I really was a ballet dancer, not someone that said they were out of central casting, you know, because we all lie a little bit on our resumes. Can you roll a blade? Sure. <laughs> Can you dine black diamond ski? Yep. Can you, are you ever in trouble? Yeah, sure, I can do it all. So when he saw that I could really do it all with, you know, in terms of, you know, all the point work and, and all, and, you know, knew the terminology and could help. I mean, the big thing was what blew his mind was that he allowed me to choreograph. He tested that water and he said, how about if you choreograph all the people that you do and select the music and I thought this is incredible then I got to consult on costuming I got to help with casting with the ballet storyline and so he included me in all aspects obviously I had to help with the terminology and I found myself again given an opportunity by Bill Bell to further exercise my writing expertise During your years on Young and the Restless, um, you received 11 NAACP Image Awards and two Emmy nominations, but never the Emmy itself. Considering that most of the industry would agree that your portrayal of Drusilla was one of the most realistic, spot-on portrayals of a woman of color in the history of the genre, how do you wrap your mind around the fact that you never won the Emmy? Well, I, I really tackle that question the way that millions and millions of people um, across the board, black, white, young, old, male, and female, have been asked the question a bazillion times, and the question comes up quite a bit on my website, victoriarowell.com. We have about 10 million hits just over a year now up and running. And, um, you know, people ask the question, how is this? And it's more ridiculous than anything else that um, it hasn't come to fruition um, I've had colleagues of mine, not necessarily on my own show, but it, it has been the case where there have been actors that have been quite concerned about why I can't get in or I can't get on the ballot um, by my peers on my own show before I go out to the big house, so to speak, to be voted on. Um, 
I've received calls from actors from other soaps that said, we don't see your name on the ballot. What gives? And um, I just think that there is a gang mentality that exists that, um, you know, it's a popularity contest, and I just don't buy coffee for the actors. I don't bring in snacks. Um, I don't go with the okie-dokie if I see something that I think we should discuss, whether it's my storyline or whether it relates to me or not. But oftentimes, and I was certainly told this by the brass, you know, Vicki, we look to you for leadership. Well, you can't say that to me in closed quarters and then expect me to act differently. People have looked to me for leadership and to be their voice on the show. And I took that role very seriously behind the camera. So sometimes, oftentimes rather, change is painful and, and is slow to come about. And um, those of us who stick to our guns are punished for bringing about change. But I don't regret one second of it. Now, speaking of that, um, you mentioned how people get punished sometimes uh, for being outspoken and passionate about what they believe. Uh when you first spoke out about the Emmy nomination process in Soaps in Depth, calling it contaminated and racist, your then Young and the Restless co-star Peter Bergman said in an interview with TV Guide Canada's Nelson Branco, I quote, I look at her with compassion and concern. I don't think she's playing with a full deck, end quote. How do you respond to remarks like that? Well, Peter's a talented uh, actor, but I feel that Peter is an actor that lives in a bubble, excuse the pun. And I don't find uh, him to be an actor that cares about whether black actors have an equitable share of Soap Digest and uh, Soap Opera Weekly covers since he's on the cover, you know, every other week. Um, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. Um, I don't think he really cares about the fact that black actors come to work and have to do their own hair or have their hair done in a salon prepped before they come to work. I don't think Peter cares that when I walked into a dressing room for a fitting, um, I was told what was on sale and what Melody Thomas Scott didn't want. I could try it on it, and if it fit, I could have it. I don't think Peter cares about those kinds of things. So if Peter's idea of not playing with a full deck has to do with social equality, then I'd say he's living um, pre-Civil War, by pre-Civil War standards. So, yeah. And it's so amazing. But, I, but he... I also find that I think we should mention that this is a man that took great delight in presenting um, a Tiffany gift to me for my son. And um, if he has that type of commentary to say to me, not that I sort of I, I don't read into that, but, I mean, this is a man that presents a Tiffany gift to me for my son and has these types of, 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 of um, disparaging things to say about me. I'd say that perhaps he needs to be evaluated for schizophrenia. Now, let me piggyback here and ask you some things. I know that when you first spoke out to Nelson um, and, and, and in Soaps in Depth, it was a shocker for me because Y&R has been given so many accolades over the years as being the diverse soap, basically because of characters like Drusilla and 
Malcolm and Neil that and and Liv that we saw win these NAACP Image Awards. Was it bittersweet for you knowing the real story that was going on while Let's Y&R go was back getting... to Peter Bergman for a minute, shall we? Sure. Since we brought it up. And because I wasn't given a, an, a fair opportunity to give rebuttal to what I think is a is a um, unfortunate comment that he made in that I gave nearly 20 years to the show. And I think he was, well, I know he was on the show long before I was, but we need to remind Mr. Bergman that when he was on the show, the show was not number one when he first came on the show. But when I came on the show, we went to number one. And I think that's part of the reticence with Mr. Bergman that at the end of the day, uh, he and a few others take great um, umbrage. Uh, I don't even think that I should even give it that kind of, of, of vocabulary. There's a level of jealousy there um, and resentment that I would be, and when they test the polls, I test as high as Eric Braden. So I believe that there is a reticence that is is so thick you can cut it with a knife. So, um, you know. Now, what was your working relationship like with Eric? Oh, Eric's brilliant. Eric's amazing to work with. He's truly an actor. Um, and let's not dismiss the fact that this is a man that does prime time. He does feature film. He does theater. He's world traveled. He's, you know, he's a man that understands. Let's get in the sandbox and let's play. Um, I love working with Eric, and Eric loves working with me. And I asked for a storyline. He wanted a storyline. I mean, something sizzling, and the show just wouldn't give it to us. Um, we uh, had great fun uh, working together. I have tremendous respect for him, and, and, and that is mutual. In fact, he called me over the summer. I want to take a moment to just give you a little bit of credit for, for me becoming addicted to YNR, because when I started watching the show, there were two things that got me hooked. It was Victor versus Jack, and it was Drew versus Phyllis. Do you have a favorite um, Drew versus Phyllis storyline or memory? Well, I mean that's an interesting. That's another interesting relationship. Uh, there was there was a relationship on set that I absolutely loved, and uh, the audience couldn't get enough of. And you may recall that we were voted in Soap Digest, you know, uh, one of the top five couples to watch. <laughs> um, Tremendous fun, um, a lot of uh, uh, improvisation um, came out of the scene. Sometimes we didn't even know it was going to happen. It just happened organically. You know, I really enjoyed those years. Obviously, the audience really um, uh, infused a, a whole other level of energy um, in the writers because they demanded, and still do, to see the Phyllis Drusilla uh, scenes. Um, Unfortunately, once again, um, something mysterious happened in that uh, (laughs) some very unfortunate things took place, some some improvised things took place, one of which was Michelle Stafford decided it would be fun not to tell me and spit on me in a scene. And... um, 
you know, when when an actor makes that kind of um, a vile decision uh, without informing the other actor, um, in my opinion, that would be perceived as a form of premeditated humiliation. And um, Sony had to come and she had to, she was forced to apologize, but I will never forgive her for doing that to me. Um, it was unnecessary, it was unwarranted, and it was when Y&R wrote that I would be her boss um, at the cosmetics company. Um, but it told me that perhaps she wasn't so crazy about doing those scenes uh, with me, and she perhaps, and this is my own theory, wanted to, to, to put an end to those scenes, and um, so they did. Wow. Um, in retrospect, um, in retrospect, as a fan, that makes things very bittersweet. As a fan who so thoroughly enjoyed the Drusilla-Phyllis dynamic. And let me just add this, that when she did apologize, um, I turned to the brass in that room the next day and I said, don't stop writing our scenes. So I want the fans to know that professionalism before the personal piece for me. And I requested, in spite of the unfortunate event that took place that day, um, because I truly believe that she, she took umbrage, that the writers had, had written me to be her boss to that extent, I recommended that they continue to write our scenes for the fans. It's not about the actors after a certain point. Um, it's about the fans. And unfortunately, my voice was not heard and someone else's was. Wow. I know you're shocked. <laughs> I want to turn to your on-screen children or one of your on-screen children because YNR uh, incorporated your history into the show by in introducing a foster kid, um, Devon Hamilton, played by yes. Brighton McClure. Um, he won an Emmy for his work in the storyline. Was it bittersweet for you to have provided the show such an integral storyline for so many years, only to be turned down when you asked to write for the show? Well, certainly. And, and I, you know, I'll say that I don't give 50% of what I have. I give the 110%. That's how I was raised. Um, you do the whole job, not part of the job. And my take on working under contract for Bill Bell and his legacy um, was like anything else I had done, whether it was working with Bill Cosby or working with Dick Van Dyke. There was no difference. I never segregated my work. Everybody got the same effort out of me. And so there was an opportunity to pitch uh, to Jack Smith um, the foster care storyline. And um, it took a while. I continued to pitch. And um, I presented even in writing some material um, to take, you know, to, to really look at and to examine, hey, maybe this could be a great story. Um, and once it started to get its legs, of course, I gave um, a lot of 
of, of um, I, I offered consulting is what I'm saying, um, and uh, of course framed it with the characters that needed to come on board. I was extremely um, passionate about the actor being black um, because the predominant, unfortunately, the predominant population in foster care um, are African American boys. So it was very important to me that that take place, and we needed a social worker, and um, we needed a number of things. I thought the introduction of the mother was very important, the natural mother, to show that there was love. So that storyline I feel very responsible for, um, and obviously uh, during my last contract I asked to write for the show, and um, I won't say who, but... The, but but it came back with we've never done that before and quite frankly I didn't know what that meant. And we want to clarify that also some of those points um, given with the recent drama surrounding allegations of actors rewriting scripts on other soaps we want to make a point here that you are a member in good standing with the Writers Guild of America and have written for the CBS primetime 90s hit Diagnosis Murder that right. you start on for eight seasons and and also, um, there are several instances. I know Tony Geary pitched a story for General Hospital, and Don Hastings, who stars as Bob Hughes on As the World Turns, wrote for that soap for many years. So it has I been done it, before. You know, I just, you know, for a number one daytime serial like The Young and the Restless, which is perceived as ahead of the curve, as it should be, um, I've found out a lot of things. In hindsight, um, you know, I was never paid for my storylines. Um, I was never compensated. I gave it freely because I believed in, you know, what the show, um, you know, was was willing to take a hold of and run with it. And that was more important to me to get out to 25 million people, to get the message out, to get the word out to this extraordinary audience, not only domestically, but globally, because the issue um, is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's across cultures, and it's around the globe, and I never thought about the business aspects um, so much. Um, I just wanted to share, and I think that's the hardest part of all of this, is that there wasn't a willingness to give back. I want to turn for a moment back to your right. I didn't right. really see the act of reciprocity because people lose sight of what reciprocity really means. It's not only a check. It's really embracing your talent in all aspects. And when you are a number one daytime show and you have somebody like Bradley Bell who's not afraid to share the platform let's say, with Susan Flannery, who acts and who directs. And, you know, she's multifaceted, and he understands that and takes advantage of that. We lost sight of that on our show. Bill Bell really embraced all of the talent of a person and rewarded you for it. And I found that the more I shared, the more I was punished. Does having a New York Times bestselling book give you a sense of validation as a writer? Oh, Absolutely. There's no question about uh, that. I would write that book in my dressing room. I was working on that book for years um, and even wrote parts of it before I joined The Young and the Restless, uh, but worked steadily on it while I was on the show, especially the last 
um, two years. Um, I would be there way after everyone went home. Um, and the carpentry department and graphics, the graphics at CBS, those departments were so awesome because they let me use their computer and their printing machine so that I could get a lot of work done while I was there at CBS. But obviously, um, getting onto the New York Times and being published by HarperCollins, which is one of the most respected publishers around the world, I know that I turned in a solid book. Uh, a book that's now in its seventh printing hardcover, sixth printing paperback. It's still selling and um, was just submitted for Grammy consideration for the spoken word component, and it's going to be made into a television series. Congratulations. Thank you. But I was willing to offer this. You know, you think things are being done to you, but they're being done for you. I mean, if Y&R had turned around and said, you know, we'd love to have you come write for us. We need a black writer. Um, and we need, never mind that, we need someone with your expertise. We're already using your pitch stories. We already have them up and running. One of them's like over five years old. That's called the Foster Care storyline. We just brought back the ballet storyline. We need someone with your experience. I mean, how better to reward one of your actors and keep them loyal to your show than to keep them as an actor, keep them on board, and help them flourish? So I asked to write, and I asked to direct, and I was shot down. For what reason, I do not know. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the storylines that you implemented are still present day. Lily just recently met with Drusilla's ballet mistress, and they, re they introduced some of Devon's biological family just recently. Sure. I don't know if you're keeping up with the show or not, but let's um, talk about some of your other writing projects that you have going um, I know that you're working on a children's book and the scandalously titled Secrets of a Soap Opera Diva. What can you tell us about those projects? Um, the children's book, um, you know, I'm really not at liberty right now to talk about it, except that I have a very interested um, publisher. Um, okay. And I wrote a children's book back in 2000, and I think... Um, you know, based upon, again, I always want to encourage some of the scribes out there, um, write your stories because you just never know. File them, register them with the Library of Congress and the Writers Guild of America to protect them from plagiarism um, and just to protect them so that they're uh, obviously registered. Um, but I, I've long been a storyteller, um, and my friends um, will tell you when I was you know, 12 and 13 years old, I, I was a storyteller. And people would say, Vicki, tell us a story. And I could just off the cuff create a, a wonderful, you know, magical, mystical story. And um, I started writing them. So I'm happy about the children's book um, and the progress I'm making there. Um, and then in terms of secrets of a soap opera diva, um, it is fiction. And um, I don't care if you believe that or not. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot of fun. And um, there is a catharsis that takes place, obviously, as a writer, because I was in the world so long, in the daytime sphere for so long. Um, but um, we're hoping to get it on the stands um, as quickly as possible. And it's very juicy. It's 
Um, it's going to be a sizzler, and if it's not your spring read, you'll definitely be reading it on the beach. Nice. What's better than a summer beach book? There's nothing better. Nothing better. (laughs) Nothing better. In addition to touring, what other types of things are you doing to generate buzz for your writing projects? Well, you know, it's interesting. Being on the road, like just this past Saturday, I was at Borders in Atlanta um, for a book signing, and prior to that I was in Alaska. And, oh, can I just do a shout-out to the fans in Alaska? Nobody goes up there, they told me. And they were thrilled. Um, the mayor came out <laughs> um, of Anchorage, and um, we had a fabulous time up in Alaska. Um, I can just tell you that being on the road um, is absolutely integral to the success of your book. I don't care, and I hope Eileen is listening, and I hope you know if, if Fiona Hughes plans on going back out and, and, and republishing her book and all of our, our daytime authors out there that are writing books. I, I hope I've inspired them, um, but the main thing is you've got to put in your road time, um, no matter how popu- popular you are, because I've sold over 200,000 books. The benchmark, um, the benchmark for a successful book sale is only 25,000, so I've gone above and beyond, um, and will continue to sell. Um, but you've got to get out there on the road. Obviously, being out on the road with a New York Times bestseller and a book that's been recognized by NPR and CNN and the Washington Post, Miami Herald, Boston Globe, on and on, um, AOL, uh, is that I'm able to piggyback now this book tour that I'm on and promote Secrets of a Soap Opera Diva. So obviously the book managers are standing there and the hands just shoot up in the air, oh my God, I'm getting that book. So, you know, it's an exciting time for me as a writer. Um, uh, But I do want to let the fans know that, of course, if I were invited back to The Young and the Restless, I would consider going back. Um, But, you know, if if your dance card, um, you know, isn't presented to you, um, you know, and if you don't have dance partners, uh, your dance card kind of stays blank. Well, speaking of dance partners, um, uh, Christoph St. John, who you uh, co-starred with on the show for so many years, has been speaking out about how much he loved working with you and, and misses that connection. And and he said to one of the soap magazines that he doubts Neil will ever have that connection with another actress. How does that make you feel to hear that? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's sweet. I mean, Christoph and I clearly have... Uh, you know, chemistry, and you can't buy that. You can't make that happen. Um, and uh, the audience always can see through, and there's nothing like a daytime audience. They will tell you in a hot flash, uh, nope, not interested in that couple. <laughs> oh, <Nope>. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, no holds barred. And so uh, always the, the energy and the synergy between Christoph and I has been platinum. It's just been just platinum. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think that it would be hard for me to find someone, um, you know, I've had rare occasion where I have had on-screen chemistry where it just worked. And when they said cut, you were done. 
He went, you know, I went home to my family, he went home to his family, and we did that day after day, year after year. Um, so I agree with him there, absolutely. Jumping back one second to I mean, uh, I wonder how his other actresses feel that we're working with him now since he was so um, outspoken about that. Um, but I certainly, you know, obviously appreciate the nod. Now, let, uh, jumping back just one second to the promotion of your projects, um, will you be utilizing your annual high tea in any way to do so? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I typically have uh, the high tea event at, at the Beverly Hills Hotel in Beverly Hills, California. People fly in from all over, and um, we have a, an A-lister uh, uh, songstress, typically. Um, we've had from Yolanda Adams to Stephanie Mills to Patty Austin to Denise Graves. I mean, it just we've had tremendous. We've had Sharon Stone come out and uh, with her family, and she's been my auctioneer. And we just do a lot of fun things. And we've had daytime personalities, obviously, participate from Jeannie Cooper to Shamar Moore. It's just been great. And uh, Tanya Lee Williams. So this year we're going to do something different and fabulous. We are going to have our high tea on one of the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line ships. And uh, we're going to be docked on May 3rd, and we hope people will come out and join us. And after we do our high tea on May 3rd at Long Beach on the Mariner cruise ship, we are then going to set sail down the Mexican Riviera, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to have some of my daytime friends on board with me, and it's going to be Sailing the High Seas with Victoria Rowell, a daytime diva, and her book hopefully will be published by then, and her friends. Awesome. That sounds like a blast. What could be better? So oh, divas on the sea. Sounds Even, awesome. <laughs> watch out, sharks. Watch out. <laughs> watch out, honey. I'll tell um, you. We are going to have a blast and um, we have limited space. Um, it's already getting a lot of buzz. Um, I've, I've, I've been talking to quite a few people who want to be on board, um, not only for the high tea on May 3rd, but want to set sail. And, of course, you know, a lot of the, the folks can't stay on the ship until the 10th of May. That's when we come back uh, to Long Beach. Some will, you know, will go to port and they'll fly off from there. But, um, we're really looking forward to um, having the public come out and support the cause and then stay on the ship and set sail with us. So if, if I'm understanding this correctly, you're going to have the cruise, but if people can't afford or aren't able to go on the cruise, they'll have the other opportunities as well. So there's different um, opportunities for different people with fin different financial situations? Yes, actually, there's a three-tier, and it's really more time um, concerns than cost because it's going to be very cost effective. But for instance, the day before the high tea, we are going to host, I'm going to host a writer's workshop um, for people who are interested in um, book promotion or book writing. And we'll have some spectacular people to help with that. And then the following day, and we'll have all those details um, that will be provided by Advantage International, who um, will be the travel agency uh, handling. And I know that you're going to post all that information for me. Definitely. And then Most the, definitely. We'll include it when we post the episode. Absolutely. And then the following day, that'll be May 2nd, and then on May 3rd, we have our high tea. 
where we will celebrate exemplary mentors uh, and also our foster children, their parents, our adopted youth as well. Um, we always give out an Agatha Award, uh, and we have asked a very high-profile um, uh, individual to accept our invitation. So we, we are, we're promising a spectacular event, ING Bank Foundation, is um, our platinum sponsor, um, it was, so we're very excited. And we want to thank Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines for underwriting the entire tea uh, for 09. Um, those that can stay on board and have planned to do so will do just that. Those who have come out just for the tea, unfortunately, will have to get off the boat. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. So, so it's, it's multifaceted. We have the writer's workshop, and some people may just want that. Um, then we have people that just want to come in for the signature tea. And then we have people that will want um, the whole package and perhaps just the cruise component, sailing the high seas with Victoria Rowell, the daytime diva, and her friends. Um, and we're going to talk about the book, and we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to do a panel and um, do autograph session, and uh, there will be entertainment on the ship while we're at sea. And we were different ports of call that we're very excited about. Um, and come on back with a fabulous tan. But whatever happens on the boat stays on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That sounds like quite the steamy ride. <laughs> it's going uh, to be fun. <laughs> definitely. Now, being that you're ever the multitasker, you also managed to sneak in a movie role while doing um, your promotion. I saw an Internet Movie Database that you were in a Robert Townsend film uh, <laughs> of boys and men. I, I recently asked this of your fellow YNR alum, Vivica A. Fox, when do you find the time to sleep? Yeah, well, you know, Jamie, um, uh, and, and folks, if, if, if you don't know what you're listening to, um, this is the 300th. Am I right, guys? Yes, so that is what it is. 300th episode. Just an incredible marker. How do I find the time to sleep? Well, I do. I mean, I, I, I rest. I run really hard. I get a lot done in the day. But I wholeheartedly believe in getting my rest. So I just make it happen. Yeah. Make it happen. All of a sudden, you're sounding like Tim Gunn on Project Runway. I'm sure a lot of people can relate. <laughs> you know, if the truth be told, I have traveled. Um, I'm, I'm heading towards 600,000 miles in over a year, just over a year. Um, I write on the plane, I read on the plane, I sleep on the plane, um, but I really, truly, I, I attempt to take as best care of myself as possible. I drink a ton of water, I do rest at night, I do get room service, damn it. <laughs> you go. Um, it's called balance, and there's a way to find the balance, but there's a level of discipline that has to be... Um, that, that has to be implicated, and, uh, you know, I, I really do do that. Stepping away from um, your pro prolific career for a moment, um, I want to take the, a moment to congratulate you on your engagement to the renowned artist Radcliffe Bailey. Congratulations. Thank you very much, Luke. Uh, yeah, we're really excited. <laughs> um, our engagement party is on, is on October 11th in Atlanta, and... Um, you know, we'll get married next April. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really, it's great. I mean, I've worked really hard my whole life, and 
I feel like, um, you know, everything in its in its own time, and that certainly is the case for me. My daughter is heading off to college in a couple of days, and, um, you know, Jasper's going to be a teenager this year, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great. It's really great. It's great! <laughs> I know that Jay recently asked you about the news that broke of your former um, on-screen sister, Tanya Lee Williams, on her return to YNR as Olivia. Yeah. But the one question all our readers are dying to know is, would you ever go back to the show as Drusilla? Well, I mean, it's an obvious question to ask. Um, first of all, you know, I, you know, Tanya and I stay in touch. Um and uh, she knows I'm extremely happy for her. Um, and before I answer the question, I hope that my advocacy, being on the road, um, I could not go to one book signing without some fans in the room saying, when are you going back, and we miss you, and what's up with the fact that where are the winters, and where are the barbers? What happened to those families? And so I have I've been advocating that they write in and ask for the Winters and the Barber family to be put back together. That we didn't raise ourselves, that once upon a time there was a character named Mamie and Olivia and Drusilla had parents and there was little Nate and there was big Nate and if they can raise John Abbott from the dead, clearly they can raise Nathan from the dead. <laughs> so I I just felt that since the predominant audience watching The Young and the Restless is measured to be African-American women, well, where are we? Where are the people that are create, who are creating that number one status on the show? And I'm not talking about the revolving door of a black female. I'm talking about a strong black female figure um, and one of the original cast members. So maybe, maybe enough women have written in. I mean, and this isn't just black women. White women have said, where, where are you guys? We miss you. There's something missing. So I hope that I had something to do with getting the pens out and getting those keys ticking so that um, at least one of the Barber sisters are, are back, um, you know, center stage on The Young and the Restless. Um, as for my own return, uh, I have not been invited back, so then I don't know what my answer would be. But I, I think I, I left that door open when I left. Speaking of your departure, you. they didn't do you any justice sending you off the cliff. Yeah, but Drew Silla can swim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one They're of the black people that, that swims. Yeah, there, that debunks that myth, because some of us can swim. <laughs> Yes, Drusilla can swim. <laughs> and now let me ask he you loves that. living with the logger in the in the log cabin eating pine nuts. <laughs> she doesn't know who she is anymore, but she's definitely out there. Um, she's out there. She has a bit of amnesia, but she'll she'll shake that off as soon as she sees Neil. And you know the logger has a bathroom mirror cabinet filled with pictures of all of her um, fashion shoots. He knows who she is. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, he's kind of sick. He's, you know, he's kind of sick. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, let me, um, before we get into, um, we have some viewer questions coming up that Luke's going to intro in, but I just have to ask this question because the rumor's been out there and I just wanted to get your reaction. 
if they were to recast the role of Drusilla, how would you feel? Well, I mean, it would be the it would be I think the end of an era for the viewers um, who have been loyal to Drusilla and I to them. But if Sony, um, the Bell family, uh, Barbara Bloom, uh, who is the senior VP of CBS Daytime, decide to do that without giving me the right of first refusal, I think that would be kind of lowballing. Um, I think that would be really below the belt. But if that's what they are going to do, then that's what they are going to do. But let me just say this. No one is irreplaceable. Um, at the same time, I hope they're ready for viewers writing in. Um, Drusilla is iconoclastic, and I can say this because I'm very clear about who I am as a person. My name is Victoria Rowell, but I know the character I built, and she cannot be just recast. Um, Drusilla resonates with people because she's a pull-her-up-by-the-bootstraps character. People have watched her do it methodically for 18 years. And so the viewers, I think, will be insulted, just like I think voters out there are insulted that John McCain picked a woman because of the plumbing. I think that you don't get to just put someone in place because she's brown. She, exactly. she has to come with the goods. And they just have to be prepared for the fallout. In, uh, and in, there will be, definitely. In, you guys in are honor, speechless. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the fallout is something that any of us really want to contemplate for the, uh, for the simple fact that if – if there it was recast, if the role was recast, then some of us would have to come to terms with a few things as fans, and I'm not sure any of us want to do that. We have three questions from our listeners and readers at daytimeconfidential.com and of the podcast in honor of the 300th episode. Um, the first one comes from Jamie Love, who asks, if you could bitch slap any character, not the actor, but any character on Young and the Restless, who would it be and why? Oh, um, Jack Abbott. Because he's a crybaby. So I'd have to slap him because he cries every time. I mean, you know, come on, grow up. Put your big boy panties on. <laughs> and then um, that would have, I mean, they're, of course, Phyllis, but I, I did bitch slap her quite a bit. Okay, our second uh, reader question comes from Seattle Girl, who asks, Miss Rowell, I think you're an amazing actress and hope you will come back to Y&R. What advice would Drusilla have given Lily in regards to the Kane-Chloe situation? I was hoping that Lily had a little bit of her mom in her when she would have a little bit of her mom in her when she first learned about Chloe's pregnancy. Hopefully we will get to see Lily be like her mom and hopefully you will come back. We miss you. Yeah, well, thank you for, um, thank you for all of that. Um, as I say, I've not been invited back, so you'll have to write in to um, Daytime Confidential and uh, youngandtherestless.com um, and ask uh, the folks over there what 
what, what's going on on that front. As for um, the mom, you see, there was an, an actress called Devetta Sherwood that I loved working with. And Devetta was Drew's daughter. And I came to work on a Monday and was told that they recast her. Sight on, they just did it. Um, and talk about bitch slapped. That was a dark day for me because I loved working with that woman. And she really got it. And she was so close to who Drusilla is So and was. So I just didn't understand that at all. Neither did so, we. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously, I wouldn't, you know, I, see, that's something that you can't teach. Devetta Sherwood came to the table with life experience offset, off the set. And that's what I think makes a good actor, one's life, life, ex, one's life experience. And um, that's what you see in the Drusilla character. And you can't ask somebody to stop talking Valley Girl talk. You just can't. I mean, Drusilla's not a valley girl. I don't even know how they got there. Maybe it was Whoa. her classical education. We lived in France, darling. If anything, <laughs> she should be speaking with a French accent. I don't know where, I don't know where valley girl came from. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, our third question comes from longtime listener Daisy Clover, um, who writes, um, Drew, Neil, Malcolm, Olivia, and Nathan years ago were dynamic and complex front burner Af- African-American characters, somewhat a rarity on daytime soaps. While Young and the Restless has been praised for creating black characters that were both popular and integral to the show, did you ever feel that romantically the characters tended to be isolated from the rest of the cast? Oh, you mean like the young and the rest of us? <laughs> um, I'd have to say that Bill, see, Bill listened to his viewers. Bill really cared about what the viewership thought. That's what, that was another facet to the success of the show. You know, Bill ran that show, but he cared about every element of the show especially the fans. So, you know, he created a cast beyond Mamie because it was not correct that a maid, a black maid, should represent this huge audience that was watching the show that happened to be African American. Um, So I feel like Bill, you know, made it so that his characters would be infused um, with the rest of the cast once he built that story arc. And he did. I mean, I loved my scenes when Drew uh, worked opposite Jerry Douglas as, you know, John, John Abbott. Drew opposite John Abbott. Those were very tender scenes. It was great. It really was a golden time on the show, and it, it harkens to what we talk about a lot here, that there aren't many Bill Bells anymore, Doug Marlins or Gloria Montes that really are passionate about this industry anymore, and, and the ratings are showing it. Yeah, and really care about, you know, not leaving actors in silos. I will tell you one thing. They must do something about Neil as an executive living in a studio apartment. I mean, okay, <laughs> it's a one-bedroom. All right, maybe it's a two-bedroom, but he has a kitchenette for crying out loud. Give me a break. He needs to have his own home. 
the Winter's Mansion? Yeah, the exactly. Winter's Mansion two-bedroom <laughs> apartment, a.k.a. two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> and by the way, while we're on the subject of the Winter's residence, can they please paint the walls other than the color that matches the Winter household skin tone? <laughs> I never ever thought of that. Yeah, I'm going to have to right look at that apartment with more, more attention. Yeah, they blend right into the walls. But anyway, here we go. What's the next question? Actually, we're we're at the end, Vicky. Um, we know that you're a very busy lady, so we don't want to keep you. But we would like to encourage people to check out the Ralph Foster Children's Positive Plan at www.ralphfosterchildren.org. And we will also be posting on the blog the information about the sale the high seas with Victoria Rowell, a soap opera diva and friends, so that you can go ahead and jump on that very quickly. Vicki, we thank you so much for being here to celebrate our 300th episode. Oh, yes. You have no idea how greatly we appreciate you joining us and making this such a great episode. Thank you so well, much. I want to thank you both. This has been absolutely delightful, and I want to encourage uh, all of the uh, podcast members to log on to victoriarowell.com for the book tour, the ongoing book tour schedule. Thank you. Awesome. Most we definitely. We will post that too, definitely. We will oh, post a so link much. to everything and we thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Vicki.